Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 10, the 500-page handwritten script edition. I'm your host, Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at the Dissolve. In this installment, Spike Lee's lackluster remake of Park Chan-wook's Old Boy has us thinking about American remakes of foreign films, what they gain in translation, what they lose, and what's so damn hard about just reading some subtitles in the first place. Then we chat with Flavor Wire and Atlantic writer Jason Bailey about his hefty new book, Pulp Fiction, The Complete Story of Quentin Tarantino's Masterpiece, which dives deep into what the movie is and how it came to be. We'll try something new in our game segment, Icon vs. Icon, which challenges players to identify films based on the iconic characters its stars have previously played. Stay tuned, Dissolve fans. As we're recording this, Spike Lee's Old Boy is just heading into theaters, so it's hard to tell whether it's actually going to connect with viewers. But judging by the abysmal reviews so far, it certainly doesn't seem to be connecting with critics, particularly the ones who saw and loved the dark, stylish 2003 Korean version of Old Boy, which Lee was remaking. English-language remakes of foreign hits can smuggle creative new plots and concepts past Hollywood gatekeepers who often want some assurance that the material will go over well with an audience. But the changes that get made when a film is reimagined through a Hollywood studio often says unflattering things about America, about both our film culture and our social culture. Here to talk about the advantages and disadvantages of American remakes of foreign films are... Scott Tobias. Keith Phipps. And... Matt Singer. So guys, uh, maybe I'm alone in this. I, I feel like my response to the entire idea of... American language remakes of uh, foreign language films just comes from my my student days when I kind of <laughs> I kind of found out about uh, foreign film at a time when American language remakes of foreign films were almost universally terrible. Like you, you'd you'd get a, a three men and a baby in France as a farce, very much in the farcical tradition, and then you'd immediately get an American language version of it that was frankly pretty bad, but but did really well. So I just I have this very knee jerk reaction to American language remakes of foreign films. Do you guys? share that or am i am i being a philistine i share that really? <laughs> I, I think I, well i mean it, well first of all is it, uh, is it in is it the principle or the track record that 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 throws you off just for the principle i want the track record i think you can always do something interesting with anything but but uh the films that you that you mentioned were uh, many of them were by francis weber uh it, he was the guy who sort of made these made, made these films and then had them uh, the, had the English language versions of them made. Uh, and For the record, that includes like the toy and the and Father's Day with the apostrophe after the S. Yeah, and, and there's that one with uh, where Martin Short gets a bee sting. What, which one was that one? Uh, pure luck. Pure luck. Uh, yeah. My father, the hero. The oh, list goes gosh. on. This is, this Basically, if you probably if you if you've seen a an American remake of a French film, it's probably of a Francis Weber film. Yeah, there was a lot, and 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 I should also follow that up by saying. The French versions of those were also bad. <laughs> it was not like it was not like a like a like a sullying of, of some great masterwork. These are these were the bad man, commercial French films made into bad commercial American films. The man with one red shoe. The list goes on and on. Look at you. It's almost. Do you have some sort of a page? Actually, open? I, I do, but not that page. That's, oh. that's all off the dome. Matt, what do you what do you have to say? I, I don't think I'm opposed to it in 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 general. For me, I think it's it's more a matter of uh, execution. I mean, there have been a lot of good remakes of American films. There's been a lot of good remakes of uh, foreign films. Maybe not a lot, but there's been some. There, it has worked. Uh, to me, it's more about how they do it, and and specifically, the thing that really always drives me crazy is when you take the foreign uh, film and then just remake it almost you know, like shot for shot or scene for scene, you know, the very faithful remake just drives me crazy. I mean, I, I faithful 
remakes drive me crazy in general or faithful adaptations drive me crazy in general. But uh, to me, it's like it's especially egregious when you're remaking a movie that already exists. It's not like you're adapting a book that everyone loves or a play that a lot of people have seen. You're you're adapting an existing film that's already a film that already exists unless it's been uh, mysteriously lost to history somehow, which in most cases uh, hasn't happened. So to me, it's like if you're going to remake it, do something interesting and creative with it. Don't just, you know, change the names or, you know, Americanize the names, hire an American cast and just redo the movie that we've already seen. Well, I'm not I- exactly disagreeing with you. I mean, I'm all for uh, English language films that just completely re like retake what they're what they're working with. And I mean, one of the things that, that first comes to mind is Star Wars as a riff on the Hidden Fortress. I mean, that is very very far from a shot for shot remake. But if you watch them back to back, you can really see where one film becomes the other film. And I do think that that's a lot more interesting than a shot for shot remake. On some level, though, I certainly don't have your knee-jerk reaction against that kind of thing, in part because there are audiences that are just never going to watch a foreign film, that are never going to watch something subtitled. And if you can give them um, a, you know, a really unique story or a really well-done story, I actually I enjoyed Vanilla Sky quite a bit. I may be alone in that, but nope. it's pretty close to Abre Los, Los Ojos. I never took Spanish. I'm, I may be mangling that. But you know, it's not that different a film in many ways, but I, I think in some ways it's the equal of that film. Yeah, I think that's an instance of a director um, coming in and bringing his own style to it. I think, I think in interviews, Cameron Crowe referred to it as, as, as a, uh, a cover version of, of the film and not a remake, which it kind of is kind of uh, an annoying way to say that but it's also accurate. There's definitely a lot of Cameron Cronus to that film, even though it is, as you say, fairly faithful to to the plot of, of the original movie. I like that movie quite a bit. I mean, I like the I like the idea. I think using the the word cover version is kind of a way to sneak a something that's like common and respectable past a word that often is considered not very respectable. Uh, well, I, I, let me say this. I in in response to 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 you, Tasha, you you I I, I really feel like as a motivation for. Uh, making a movie uh, that that just bringing it to a to an audience that would that would doesn't want to read subtitles is a pretty crappy reason to make a movie uh, you know and uh, and so and, and there's an example uh, you know delivering man I did not see uh, that film but I did see Starbuck uh, Genevieve who saw both is giving it a big old thumbs down but uh, from what I understand <laughs> it's pretty much a shot for shot situation uh, and, and just blatantly kind of sort of bringing it to a, to an audience that speaks English and that's that's not interesting to me at all but I want to I want to note this exception which is uh, funny games funny games <laughs> you, you knew I'd say that oh well it, I mean it has to come up because it, it's just very much first of all it seems to be one of your favorite films that comes up a lot with you second of all that is <laughs> one of those films that like there are a, a handful of films out there remade by the same director yes. just re-riffing on his own work and that is pretty close to a shot for shot remake with, yes. with American language and well, American it's, actors it's much more rigorous in my opinion as a shot for shot remake than, than Van Sant's Psycho which was supposed to be a shot for shot remake and was not um, but I think but the intent of it is very interesting to me because uh, Funny Games uh, thematically is really a, a, a movie that was about um, uh, violence being peddled in movies, specifically American movies. And I think Hanukkah saw this opportunity to bring that um, message directly to 
you know, the audience in which it's intended, in which it was intended. So, so to, to me, uh, the, the new film kind of justified its existence that way. But see, I, I mean, you object to the idea of bringing a film to a new audience that wouldn't see it otherwise. I object to the message smuggling that goes on in that film. I, I just completely dislike what he's trying to do with that film. And, and the fact that he's bringing it to me in my own language doesn't really excuse the fact that I think it's still kind but of it's a, a thought. It's a more thoughtful way it's more thoughtful than hey let's do this thing in english yeah that's yeah. fair enough i uh, just uh, briefly on the uh, the psycho tip people bring that up all the time the, the gus van sant psycho not being a shot for shot remake i read an interview with him years ago where he he openly said that when they were shooting it they claimed it was going to be shot for shot in order to get more press because they knew it might get them bad attention but it would get them lots of attention and then people would go see the film and that he never intended it as a shot for so shot he's, remake. he's like a two-year-old then <laughs> What it's uh, I said that shoes go on my hands and that's hilarious because that's not where they go like <laughs> that kind of humor. Yeah, right. What I associate most strongly with uh, foreign film to English language remakes are cases like The Vanishing, where the original version is is breathtaking and quite frankly, you know, a, a grim and daring movie. And the American remake copies it up to a point. And that point is, eh, American audiences won't go for anything downbeat, so we'll give it a really tacked-on, uh, you know, cowardly, flinching ending instead. That's that's just what I think of when I think of oh, foreign yeah. film. The movies. vanishing is the worst, and that and that's an example of the of the director, uh, it kind of you know, uh, screwing up, his own work. right, right, which is amazing to me that he would that he would do that. I mean, the assumption, uh, the, the assumptions made about the audience are so insulting, and you you wonder like. Um, a film like that really is still going to need good reviews and, and critics are going to be keenly aware that, that, uh, that the ending was compromised. I just don't understand the point of that. You know, it was chilling and that it, it, the downbeat ending is, is completely chilling in the original. If you get rid of that, what have you got? I think you got somebody getting brained with a shovel is what you got. I think one of the interesting things about Spike Lee's old boy in this context is that it isn't, uh, it, it, they haven't uh, quote unquote Americanized it or made it, you know, more accessible to the mainstream in the sense that uh, it's, you know, it's still a really disturbing, depressing movie about a guy who's locked away. Actually, he's locked away for longer in this movie than he was in the Korean film. It's 20 years in this one versus 15 in the uh, in the original version. And uh, I certainly wouldn't want to spoil anything about it, but it, 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 it's, it maintains most of the sort of shocking, disturbing plot twists that were, you know, in the original Park Chan-wook Korean film. Uh, the, th the flip side of that is, and I think this is one of the dangers of remaking, you know, foreign films, any film, uh, and, and doing it in a relatively faithful way, is anyone who has seen the original movie, which is so shocking and disturbing, uh, you're never going to have the same impact because they've really, you know, rehashed that same big twist so if you're sitting there watching it i suppose there's some element of suspense while you're wondering are they going to uh, you know recreate this the, the old movie uh, exactly or closely uh, but when you walk out of the movie ultimately you, you, the answer is basically yes i mean there are some changes but it's just it's sort of like a it, dramatically it's 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 really uh, it just doesn't have the same impact if you've seen it now if you've never seen the original i suppose it's possible you might like this new version more uh, than someone who has seen the original. But then again, there's a lot of stuff in it that's really just deliberate callbacks to the original movie, like shots of octopuses and, you know, this long fight 
in a hallway with a hammer that doesn't really make any sense in this movie and really just seems like it's there because there was a scene like it in the first film. So, I mean, for me, I guess the problem is always when you see two very similar works back-to-back or in remotely close proximity, especially if you liked the first one you saw. Whichever the first one you saw is most likely to have an impact on you and and remain with you. And then the other one's just going to seem strange by comparison. I am curious, Matt, when when we first heard from you, you were talking about how there have been uh, remakes of foreign language films that have been really good. Can you cite a single example that is not Gore Verbinski's The Ring, where a foreign language remake of a foreign film is, is better? than the original? I don't know if I would say, if I can think of one that's better. I, I think there are, have been some good ones. Uh, you know, The Departed by Martin Scorsese. I, I, I'd say it's, a, it's on even footing with Infernal Affairs. Um, the Magnificent Seven, you know, it's, it's a remake of one of the greatest films ever made. So I, I don't know if I'd put it on quite that level, but it's a really uh, fun and well-made Western. And again, it's, it's, it's the same basic story, but it's, you know, it's it's different enough that it doesn't feel like you're seeing the same movie again. You feel like uh, you're seeing something different enough that it's a different experience. Uh, in terms of, like, yeah, better than the original, there's not there's not too many I can think of. You you, you took the ring out of there, which would, would have been my go-to response. You, uh, you cleverly anticipated my move there. I mean, I, I kind of pulled it out for everybody because it's so much the exception that proves the rule. The only one that came to my mind was, um, it, and I had to look this up, Blake Edwards' uh, Victor Victoria is actually a remake of a 1930s German film, which I wasn't aware of. And maybe getting that kind of distance helps in the same way that, you know, A Bug's Life is maybe a, a better movie if you haven't seen Seven Samurai in a really long time. But I mean, hmm. Seven Samurai has inspired an awful lot of films. What about you guys? Anything come to mind? Yeah, well, I, you know, The Departed is a, good, is a good example. I think I think the key ends up being, uh, is having a filmmaker who can at least uh, put his or her stamp on a movie, you know, uh, you know, something like, you know, the good thief is not as good as Bob Flambeur, but it's a Neil Jordan film and it has that kind of Neil Jordan flavor to it. You know, Solaris is not as good as the Tarkovsky film, but it's very much a Steven Soderbergh movie. And so, so it has a, at least a different feel to it. Uh, you know, old boy, I think, um, it doesn't have enough of a, of a Spike Lee feel to it. it. He hasn't reimagined it enough, which is part of why it fails. And the other, other part is that I, I just don't think it, it can be done. It's a, it's so much a Park Chan Wook vision that I, I don't know I don't know anybody who can can replicate it with that kind of sort of gothic intensity. I mean that's just that's just a, that's just one filmmaker who, who can who can pull that off in my opinion. I do a quick shout out to my wife who has seen every version of the Seven Samurai except for the Seven Samurai. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, you know, here I'm going to throw an example of a movie that I like more than almost anyone else, which is Jim McBride's 1983 remake of Breathless, uh, which there's no way you're going to make a better movie than John Luke Godard's Breathless. But it is sort of a, it, it's a fascinating riff on the original movie. It reverses the setting where it's set in America with a, a female French uh, uh, student instead of uh, in Paris with a uh, female American student. And it's, it's kind of there's this really great riff on uh, new wave filmmaking techniques and the way they kind of seeped into Hollywood and, and, and how all that mattered in the early 1980s in, in, in a really fascinating way. Uh, I love that movie to death. And it's got uh, Jim McBride's uh, own personal stamp all over it. 
and it couldn't exist without the original Breathless, but it's it's not beholden to it in, in after a certain point. And uh, uh, I think you know if you're going to you know just not to repeat what we've been saying, but but you know you do that, do Vanilla Sky, do something that that makes it your own movie. Uh, and uh, that's that's uh, part of the uh, and acknowledge also acknowledge that you are making an American version of something and, and feel free to work the themes of the original film into your own uh, setting. And I think that's avoids a lot of the problems we've been talking about right there. I'm going to bring up one last topic that, again, may be just very specific to me. But I, I honestly feel like one of the reasons I tend to prefer the, the foreign film original in, in any case is because the actors are less likely to be familiar to me. They're, and I'm more likely to see them as the characters they're playing than as actors playing the role. Um, like, I really enjoyed the, the 1996 Japanese movie, Shall We Dance? And then that was made remade here with, with Richard Gere, which... You know, I never saw the remake. Uh, I never had any interest in it because I didn't really want to see him playing that out. I really didn't want to see Nicolas Cage starring in his version of Vim Vendor's Wings of Desire. Yeah. Uh, when I saw Three Men and a Baby, I-, I couldn't see them as characters. I was seeing Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, and Ted Danson, you know, mugging for the camera. So in so many cases like that, it's really refreshing to see people that I'm not familiar with playing these roles so I can see them as characters instead of, you know, just seeing very familiar faces and being able to see every moment that they're acting. I don't really have that reaction, <laughs> I have to say. I mean, you know, it's just a thing, you know, I mean, these are actors are in a lot of different movies and I have to accept them as the characters in which they're playing. I don't, I don't really have, find that distracting in remakes and I, I, I don't find it distracting in just regular old movies. You don't you don't see it dis- find it distracting at all when uh, that Tom Hanks shows up at Wal- as Walt Disney versus Tom Hanks showing up as a uh, you know emaciated Survivor guy. I, I really do feel that there are certain actors that don't blend into roles that well. I think we're entering realms of Tasha weirdness that uh, <laughs> straight, straight from the original. Uh. Back me up, Matt. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Save me, save me. Uh, I can kind of see it sometimes. I'm trying to think of examples. I mean, something like, I mean, but then again, there's larger problems with the movies, but like something like the the Spanish horror film Wreck is so much better than the American remake Quarantine, which does have a couple of recognizable faces in it. That And that does kind of take you out of it a little, especially because that's a found footage movie and found footage movies always work better with kind of anonymous casts who you don't know. Um, but that's another one of those very faithful remakes. So there, there's more problems than that, but I can kind of, I kind of, see what you're saying a little bit i'll settle for that i will settle for i kind of i kind of think you're not crazy (laughs) i'm not ready to instantly dismiss you well any last thoughts on uh english language remakes of foreign films guys keep them good you just don't don't just don't do it i (laughs) (laughs) just don't ever remake films yeah stop it what's the year of new ideas keith 2017 2017 until then they're going to keep remaking those films and we're going to keep watching them thanks for chatting guys thank you thank you Voyager Press recently published Pulp Fiction, the complete story of Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece. The book looks like a piece of pop art with insert boxes full of factoids, Pulp Fiction-derived fan and professional art, and two-page graphic spreads devoted to the film's chronology and Tarantino's L.A. shooting locations. But the analysis in the material runs deep, with close examinations of Tarantino's inspirations, origins, tropes, and much more. The Dissolve recently hosted an excerpt of the book, and we liked it so much, we thought we'd get the author, Flavor Wire film editor and Atlantic contributor Jason Bailey, on the line to discuss his new book. Hi, Jason. Hello. So uh, why this particular film to break down in this detail? Like, what, what drew you to Pulp Fiction? 
Well, I, uh, you know, I was 18 years old when the movie came out in 1994. So it was a film that, that, that really inspired me. And I think a lot of people of my generation, you know, to, to both want to make films and to study films. Um, it was just so vibrant and alive and, and it stuck with you. And I saw it six times in that initial run. And so I've spent, you know, the almost 20 years since revisiting it and thinking about it. And it's always been one of my favorite films. So when the opportunity came up to write about it, it was just a, a sort of a natural fit for me. What was, uh, what was Quentin Tarantino's involvement in the book like? I mean, obviously you, you quote him extensively, but you're also drawing from a, a pretty wide variety of sources. How much involvement did he have like directly with you in the book? Uh, absolutely none. Oh, really? Um, yeah, he, it was interesting, uh, when I came on the book, um, and I was actually sort of a hired gun on this one, they had, uh, they had done a, uh, Voyager had done a book that came out the year previous about the Big Lebowski that was very much in the same style, and so with the fiction anniversary coming up, they wanted to sort of replicate that, and they were just looking for an author, and I had luckily just recently written something that was sort of about Pulp Fiction at the Atlantic, and it just sort of came together. Um, when I came on, they had been trying, you know, they'd been working with Miramax for quite some time to, to make it an authorized official volume, and those talks had sort of stalled. So I was told, you know, it, it may just be an unauthorized kind of fan book, so, so work accordingly. And I also had a very short time frame to do it. And so rather than, you know, log a lot of time trying to chase him down and jumping through all those hoops, you know, there's certainly no shortage of Quentin Tarantino interview material out there. Um, so I just kind of pulled from the archive and, and, and wrote it um, as, like I said, as kind of a fan book. As luck would have it, you know, sort of as a last ditch when the book was laid out and in galley form, they made one more shot at, at getting, um, getting the blessing of, of Quentin and Merrimax. And that was the version of the book that he and the people there saw and, and liked um, and signed off on. And that was the point at which it became, you know, an official book with like real stills and behind the scenes shots and stuff like that. So I, I did it independently of him. Um, but actually, I, I almost sort of prefer to have done it that way because I was able to sort of uh, approach it with my own analysis, uh, which he said in interviews is sort of what he likes anyway. He likes people to tell him what they think of it. Hmm. Um, and the fact that, that then they approved of it after the fact, for me, meant, you know, meant a little bit more than that they had, were sort of stuck with it, uh, you know, no matter how it came out, that it was an authorized volume. The fact that they liked it so much that they wanted to, to give it the seal afterwards actually meant quite a bit to me. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. I mean, it, it certainly reads like a project that he had heavy involvement in because you quote him so extensively. I sure. uh, like even understanding what you say about, uh, you know, preferring to do it as an, as an outside analysis thing. If you had 10 minutes on the phone with him, what would you oh. ask him? <laughs> um, you know, I would, I would probably, I mean, I would, I'm selfish, so I'd want to know if uh, how much of the book he had read and if he liked it, <laughs> obviously. Um, you know, I mean, there are some of the sort of lingering questions that, that I, you know, sort of leave open and, and investigate. I mean, I think the first question that any fan of the movie would want to know is what was actually in the briefcase. Because um, obviously that's, you know, there are a lot of theories about that and we talk about that at length. And, you know, uh, beyond that, I mean... I would like to know sort of how he feels about the film now um, within the scope of his work. And, you know, there are a lot of people for whom this remains his best film. And I don't think he's one of them, but I would like to know why. 
I have to ask, I've always wondered why people are so curious about what's in the briefcase. I mean, between the fact that it's a like a reference to Kiss Me Deadly sure. and the fact that it's so clearly meant to be a mystery within the film, it's just right. never interested me that much as a question. You know, what, what seems far more interesting to me is just all of the questions... I suppose, like outside the film, you do a lot of analysis in this book of like all of the different tropes that that interest him and where he comes from, both as a storyteller and, and a film fan and a filmmaker. I'm surprised that you'd go for something like within the film that he's almost certainly not going to answer because it's meant to be a mystery rather than just, I don't know, asking him a question about about how it was made. Sure. I mean, I, th- I think it's just sort of, it, for me, it's just is the answer that he would give. I actually don't don't think, either that he would give me the answer but it seems like throughout the interviews that i that i read and pulled from from him every time that question has come up in the 20 years since he's had a different interesting response to it so i guess i'm less interested to know what he would tell me is in the briefcase than how at this point uh in his evolution since then he would answer that question one of my favorite things in the book is actually uh, there's a point where you mentioned sort of in passing that the original script was 500 pages long. Right. And, and it was handwritten, you said, which, you know, obviously would draw that out. But still, I mean, that's that's a massive script. Can you imagine, I mean, if he had had the success he had with different films and had made Pulp Fiction like later in his career, do you think we would have gotten like a two or three, like a, a, a Kill Bill-like project where he did two or three films worth of Pulp Fiction? I think that's certainly possible, and honestly, I'm not sure that that would have been for the better. I mean, I feel like one of the things that's great about Pulp Fiction and one of the reasons that it's such a, uh, that it holds up so well is because he was still at a point in his career where he was proving himself and where he didn't know, uh, you know, how many shots he was going to get at this sort of level, at this with this kind of budget and with these sorts of, of resources. And so I think there's a lot of that feeling in the film of let's pack everything in because who knows how long this train is going to run. Um, and to that degree, it's hard to, it, you know, it seems silly to say that a two and a half hour film is disciplined. But I feel that this one is. I don't, I don't feel that there's anything wasted in it. And to that end, I almost feel like some of the later films have uh, he can get a little self-indulgent i don't think we needed all four plus hours of, of kill bill you know and so i feel like once you know once you become a legend you're you're less likely to have people edit you to have um to have people say no i guess and i think he some of the choices that he made apparently early on from that uh 500 page script were vital to the film being as great as it is you you do devote some space to talking about the differences between the quote-unquote final shooting script and what we actually see in the film and one right. of the things there i thought was most interesting was apparently when vincent spoiler for pulp fiction guys when vincent accidentally uh, shoots marvin in the face and kills him the original script called for him to shoot him in the neck and then decide that he was fatally wounded and that the right thing to do was put him out of his misery. And then he apologizes to his face and then shoots him and kills him. (laughs) I find that just fascinating. I'm curious whether any of the things that you document as uh, changes between the original, either his original conception or his original final script and what we see on screen are things that you would have liked to have actually seen happen. You know, the one... uh with the the example that you gave i i'm i'm interested to say i wish that that existed as a 
as an outtake, just because I would like to see how that scene played. I don't know if it would have been better or worse, but it certainly would have been very different because the way that that scene came out and, and much of it is the, uh, oh, oh, I shot Marvin in the face, the John Travolta's line, which was apparently his invention. Um, the way that, that the line reads and the way that he says it is so funny and it makes that into such a light comic moment. And the, the scene that, that, that we read about in the original script would have had a very different tone and feel. And I'm just, I'm curious to see how that scene would have played within that sequence. In terms of things that, that I read about that didn't make the cut that I just, that I thought were interesting. One of the things that I, uh, that I like was the, uh, there's an indication in the script that early on when Vincent and Jules arrive at Marcellus's strip club, uh, the Malibu is parked right next to uh, Butch's Honda and that we're supposed to put together that the son of a bitch who keyed his car was actually Butch right after their um, altercation uh, in the bar. Uh, the, you know, you looking at something, friend, that whole back and forth. I think that's just sort of an interesting little, little touch that would have been nice to put together after the fact, the way that you do with a lot of the other connections in the film. There's a lot of stuff in the book, obviously, that I didn't know. One of my favorite kind of revelations was that Travolta almost wasn't in the film. Tarantino actually wanted him for From Dust Till Dawn and wanted Mac- Michael Madsen for the Vincent Vega role. I'm right. curious, like, as you were researching, assembling this, what did did you find out that most like surprised you or interested you? Um, I think it was, you know, it was that whole story that you mentioned actually was was uh, was very surprising just because you can't imagine anyone other than John Travolta in the role. The story that really blew me away of a similar ilk is um, that Samuel L. Jackson came so close to not getting the role of Jules, uh, that it was, that it almost went to Paul Calderon, um, who plays the bartender in the strip club, uh, that apparently Sam, you know, thinking that the role had, was his cause Quentin had, had promised it to him, uh, just sort of came in and, and did sort of a half-assed, uh, reading that he thought was just so they could hear it. And then Paul Calderon asked to read it after that and blew them away so badly that Sam Jackson actually had to fly back out, uh, from New York where he was shooting fresh and sort of re-audition for the role that had been written for him. Um, that the whole idea that anyone other than Sam Jackson would play the role, but all is you know odd and fascinating. But also, um, boy, poor Paul Calderon, because man, that role would have made him a star. <laughs> It's it's interesting to me reading through this how the same book has these kind of little pop-up trivia moments and explanations of stuff that I think at this point is, is kind of basic film knowledge, like mm-hmm. you explain MacGuffins and, and the Hayes sure. Code and all these things. And then at the same time, you're getting pretty deep into uh, Tarantino's camera usage and explaining the axis line and explaining, you know, steady cam tracking shots and what they communicate. Sure. Is there an ideal audience member for this book? You know, that's... That's a really interesting point and something that, that I'm glad you brought up because I was sort of purposefully trying with the book. I, I feel like one of the things that's great about the movie and one of the reasons that it became a, a, the success and the sort of iconic film that it did was because it's a film that is approachable by both sort of a casual uh, multiplex popcorn Bruce Willis audience and the sort of, you know, uh, indie uh intellectual audience with you know the nonlinear narrative and all of the sort of uh, deep homages and all that sort of thing um so that was at really something that i consciously wanted to replicate in terms of the tone and approach of the book that i felt like you know the the 
the format that Voyager um, wanted to use, uh, which which is wonderful, is this sort of big, glossy, you know, uh, almost coffee table book uh, in terms of the graphic design and the layout and the sort of fun little sidebars and that sort of thing. Um, and so I felt like it could coexist with a very sort of close reading, you know, film nerd egghead sort of analysis uh, because we could, you know, you can get people in with the flash and then hopefully they'll stay for, you know, the close reading stuff. Um, I felt like if, if, if we could do both at the same time, then that was something that I wanted to be able to do. Can you imagine at this point what the American filmscape would look like without Quentin Tarantino in it? You know, I can't. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's impossible to, overstate the importance of of his voice and sort of what he represented in terms of you know uh at that moment the 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 director who is sort of that well steeped in film history and the sort of the the video store clerk as filmmaker and all of those ideas at the at the same time and 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 i would never want to minimize his importance i do think that you know like a lot of great moments in popular culture like you know and I don't think it's out of line to compare them, uh, the the arrival of the Beatles or, um, you know, the release of Bonnie and Clyde. I think the, 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 the film's impact is about how it's a great film, and it's also about really good timing, that that was, like, exactly the right moment for that film to hit in the way that it did. Um, and I feel like if he hadn't come along, the, 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 it, we were primed for something like that, a movie that was of that style that was going to sort of fuse um, the the independent and the, the the blockbuster sensibility in that way at that moment. So I understand that you're working on a new book that's probably going to be out around this time next year. What's that about? Um, this is uh, for Voyager again. Um, we're doing a, a comprehensive study of uh, the the entire filmography of Woody Allen. Um, so with short essays on on every film he's directed. Uh, plus played against Sam, um, and then sort of uh, thematic essays throughout where we investigate sort of recurring, you know, ideas and, and stylistic things, um, those pieces by myself and also by uh, guest authors who are experts on those subjects. So it's a, it's a, a much bigger undertaking. We're talking about, you know, 47 movies instead of one, um, but it'll be in the same sort of style and hopefully, you know, have the same kind of approach of being both for diehards and for sort of casual admirers. Are you looking to get uh, Alan's involvement or are you going to chase that once the book's done as well, having had that experience here? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I've made a couple of, of overtures, um, but he's an even harder interview to get than Quentin. So, uh, so hopefully we'll get him involved at some point along the line. Gotcha. You can find Jason Bailey online at his website, jason-bailey.com. It has links to his Twitter, his Tumblr, his writings at Flavorwire, his writings at The Atlantic, his personal writings. It's basically a sort of a diagram of everything he does. Thanks so much for talking to us, Jason. Thank you again for having me. This was fun. to our new game. This one's called Icon vs. Icon, and it's from a road trip game invented by my beloved silver partner Bob, who doesn't get nearly enough credit for his contributions and playtesting of the podcast games I've hosted here. Here's how his rules for this one work. I'm going to name a couple of iconic characters, and you're going to consider who plays them, then name the film where they appear together as different characters. Despite the name, they won't always be opposed to each other, so listen to whether it's name versus name or name and name, meaning they might be friends or partners. 
This all sounds complicated and it does kind of feel a little like solving a math problem. Once you get into the swing of it though, it actually gets a lot easier. Here to play the game are Keith Phipps, Nathan Rain, and Noel Murray. So here's a sample question for you. If I were to say Gandalf versus Captain Picard, you would think it through and say Gandalf is played by Ian McKellen. Uh, Captain Picard has been played by Patrick Stewart. And what film did the two of them appear in together? Uh, X-Men. X-Men. There you go. Well, I would have accepted any of several X-Men movies, which is why this is a bad question, which is why it's a sample question. Um, Here's another example. Willy Wonka and Legolas. So that's Johnny Depp and Orlando Bloom. That would be the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, franchise. There you go. So uh, we're going to do this uh, instead of as a buzz-in game. We're going to do it as a round robin, since that sort of process of thinking through things sounds much more interesting than <laughs> 30 seconds of dead air while people consider. We're going to go uh, in a circle and like give everybody an opportunity to answer a question. But if it sounds like you're getting stuck, uh, we may open up the floor to let other people steal the point. Scott Tobias rule is still in effect. Once you actually give an answer, if it's incorrect, you lose a point, and we move on and open up the floor. You guys ready to try this? Yes. Yes. Keith, uh, this one's to you. Jay Gatsby versus the White Witch. All right. Jay Gatsby versus the White Witch. So that's either Robert Redford and Leonardo DiCaprio versus uh, Tilda Swinton from the Narnia films. So I'm going to think it's DiCaprio versus Swinton. And I'm going to tell you that. I do not know. (laughs) I'm blanking on anything. He walked right up to the edge of it, guys, but he didn't actually get the title. Do either of you know what it is? Oh, dear God. I'm guessing that Nolan knows the title for this. Um, Was Tilda Swinton in the beach? She was, and that is the correct answer. Good job. All right. Noel gets a point. You're the it, one person in the world who remembers at the beach. Oh, I, you know, I, I mean, it's a Danny Boyle film. I, I find yeah. it pretty stylistically it's, it's like unforgettable. Years for, uh, for Danny Boyle. All right. Uh, moving on. Nathan, this one's to you. All right. Catwoman versus John McClane. Oh, goodness. Uh, Catwoman, that'd be... Uh, Bruce Willis <laughs> portrays a role of John McClane. And Catwoman is a role that has been portrayed by Anne Hathaway. Michelle Pfeiffer and also Halle Berry. So there's thing Bruce Willis and uh, Halle Berry co-starred in a really terrible movie called The Perfect Stranger. Ding! Point for Nathan. Which I think we saw at a uh, drive-in too long ago. A very fun, really terrible movie. It has got one of the stupidest twists ever put on film. It does. And also a role where Bruce Willis literally phones in his performance. (laughs) All right, number three. Noel, this one's to you. All right. Elrond and General Zod. Okay, well, let's see. I'm going to assume that General Zod in this case is Michael Shannon. And El, Elrond, you said? Elrond. I'm totally blanking on, on who Elrond is. I'm afraid I'm out. All right, you guys want to help him out? Is that Elrond Hubbard, uh, creator of Scientology? <laughs> I know that it is the guy from The Matrix whose name I'm forgetting. Ooh, I remember his name. And I'm going to pass over to Nathan. Okay, go ahead. Uh, um, so, wait, who is the other, other person? Uh, Michael uh, Shannon is the other person. Oh, so oh, it's uh, oh, it's, it's Terrence Stamp. Uh, alternately, so goodness, that would be um, that'd be Hugo Weaving or Guy Pierce. Oh, Hugo Weaving, I'm thinking. So the Hugo a movie in which Hugo Weaving uh, appeared with either Terrence Stamp. Oh, uh, Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Very nice. Hey. There we go. I enjoy watching you guys think through these hey, things. There we go. Okay, uh, back to you, Keith. Uh, we have this one for you. Pass. <laughs> uh, Queen Amidala versus Aaron Brockovich. Okay, that should be easy. Oh, it's yeah. Julia Roberts. Oh, it's uh, Julia Roberts. I'm going to do the thought process even though I got it already. Uh, Julia Roberts and Allie Portman, the movie is closer. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Some of these definitely easier than others. All right, Nathan, I'm going to give you a threefer. We oh, have dear Lord. Jack Ryan and Jason Bourne versus Severus Snape. Oh, dear God. Well, Severus Snape, uh, I believe, is a character who was portrayed by Alan Rickman. Um, and then what was, what was the other one there? Jack Ryan and Jason Bourne. So does it have to be somebody who played both uh, Jack Ryan? And oh, no. This okay. is a th- this, when I say it's a threefer, it's three separate actors. Okay. Um, so Jack Ryan would be either Chris Pine, Alec Baldwin, Alec Baldwin, <laughs> or it would be Harrison Ford. Uh, there's one that you haven't come up with. It could be um, Ben Affleck. And then there's also Ben Affleck. Um, which I'll help me with. Okay, Jason Bourne uh, is portrayed by Matt Damon. So this would be a motion picture with uh, Matt Damon. And um, <laughs> somebody, who, oh, that, I'm guessing, so Affleck could be in play here as well. And who's, who's, who's the third person there? Severus Snape. Oh, Severus Snape, okay. Uh, Affleck, Damon, and then of, uh, Severus Snape is Alan Rickman. Oh, goodness, what motion picture was this? Um, that is a really good question. Genevieve's uh, calling for the steal here, guys. Is either one of you ready to all swoop right, you in? Can, you can go for the steal. No. Uh, that would be Dogma? Yes, very oh. good. Oh. Noel feels like he's, uh, he's walking away with everybody else's questions. All right, let's, uh, let's give you one right. actually for you, Noel, and see how you do with it. All right. Idi Amin versus mm. Clarice Starling. Ooh. So that's uh, Forrest Whitaker versus Jodie Foster. That would be uh, uh, the the David Fincher movie, right? Um, uh, oh, oh, it's the thing with the safe room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it called safe room? You're you're it's, half it's, right. It's called panic room. I, can, can, we, can I steal with the panic room? I, I don't know. Panic room. I, panic room. I, panic I, room. I feel like he got ninety percent of that. Can we give him ninety percent of the point? Can I get ten percent for dealing with uh, the panic room? All right, Noel gets nine tenths of a point for that one. Okay, all I'll right. take it. Uh, all right, Keith, back to you. Yes. Professor X versus Jacques Mazarin. Professor X, of course, is Patrick Stewart. Probably, most likely, Patrick Stewart. If we're sticking with movies, it's Patrick Stewart. <clears throat> uh, so Patrick Stewart mm-hmm. versus who again? Jacques Mazarin. Did you not see those films? Fair, maybe I forgot. What <laughs> films are we talking about? Uh, French films. A, a, a sort of a part one, part two French films. They were really, really good. I, They're very clever. I don't know. I'm just blanking on what films we're talking about. Uh, same guy was also in, let's see, Black Swan. Um, the problem with Vincent Cassell. Vincent Cassell and uh, Patrick Stewart. Nathan for the steal. Uh, so let's see. What did uh, Patrick Stewart and Vincent Cassell in? Oh man! Yeah, you're kind of so you kind of headed down the wrong black path. Here. Tasha's okay. body language tells me that we're we're chosen a different Professor X. At this point, where I caution her that that we should only be considering people who have played Professor X in films, being a film podcast. Uh, whereas <laughs> I would point out to Keith that he's kind there of an expert. There's a film called X Men First Class. I would also remind Keith. Oh. It's oh. kind of an expert in comic books. Oh, so that would be James McAvoy and Vincent Cassell mm-hmm. appeared in a motion picture together. And that motion picture would be entitled um, X-Men First Class. <laughs> <laughs> this movie came out this <laughs> year. Look right now. Okay, Vincent Gazzo. Oh, God, what the hell is Vincent Gazzo in this movie? Such a weasley motherfucker. What did that weasley <laughs> motherfucker appear in this Oh, year? I really wish this movie had been called James Was, 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 was he in trance? It was, in fact, trance. Having now and taking myself out, yes, no, I did not see uh, Mezzarine, Public Enemy Number One, or Killer Instinct. So, oh, yeah. those both of those uh, really remarkable uh, uh, profiles. 
of a real life killer. All right, Nathan, let's see what you can do okay. with this one. Yes, all right. Vito Corleone versus Michael Corleone. Michael, Ramon Brando, and Al Pacino. Oh, goodness. Uh, alternately, it could be Robert De Niro and uh, Al Pacino. Um, so Robert De Niro and Al Pacino uh, Come on, together man. in a motion picture entitled Heat. Correct. That's really, really good. But, but they did some, some other, other crap as well, uh, more recently. But also? But also... Uh, righteous uh, Righteous Kill. kill. Yeah, right. yeah. Which I is... think uh, I think you beat me on that one. I think you get a free point. Oh, hey, I'll take it. Um, but it's I, also... I also got Righteous Kill, correct? One of, one of those, one <laughs> of those, got it first, though. One of, those films well. is, one of those films is better than the other. That's true. <laughs> but only one of them featured Curtis 50 Cent Jackson. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Noel, this one's to you. Ready. Jerry Maguire versus Truman Capote. Well, there's only one Jerry Maguire, thank oh, Christ. Easy. So that makes it easier. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so that's going to be Tom Cruise versus, uh, I'm assuming, Philip Seymour Hoffman. They're both in Magnolia. Is that what you're thinking of? Mm. Uh, that's not a versus. Oh, it's got to be got that be versus. <laughs> Keep I got it, I got it, I got it. Keep his bouncing up and down over here. I bounced up and uh, down first. Me oh, but, but wait, you, you said it was... Uh, it's a versus. Jerry Maguire versus who again? Truman Capote. <laughs> versus Truman Capote. So I'm assuming it's still going to be... Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Tom Cruise, Philip Hoffman, we're both competing against each other in a film called, I give up, somebody else. <laughs> Mission Impossible 3. Keith has the, that's what I was going to say. Keith has the, I was going <laughs> to say it, Nathan, but he didn't Nathan say it. Nathan said it first. So. Nathan gets the point. Yeah. Oh, that was underrated. I enjoyed the Mission Impossible 3. Wow, he gets I so excited. He, uh, he grabbed his barnyard buzzer, Yay. which are just sitting around. Okay. Uh, Keith, back to you. Yes. TJ Hooker versus Captain Von Trapp. So that's William Shatner versus Christopher Plummer. And the film... In which William Shatner and Christopher Plummer oppose one another is eluding me. <laughs> it's not the clown at midnight, though that does feature Christopher Plummer. I'll give you a hint. I just throw that title out there because I enjoy the, t- the title, The Clown at Midnight. It's, well. it's part of a long franchise. It's one of the even numbered ones in a long franchise, notably featuring, oh, so, featuring a lot of William Shatner. Yeah, so I know, yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's almost almost cheating, but because Captain Kirk is his other iconic role, his most iconic role, although TJ Hooker is a very enjoyable TV oh, show. Yeah. Uh, but oh, I'm a. Uh, I cheated. TV you? show. Oh, yeah, that's true. And you didn't, you call me, you call me when I'm right, and you don't call me I when call, I'm wrong. I call you on this when, when, it's, when it benefits me. And then when I know the answer, I don't call you on it. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I could take a wild stab, but I think I may have to, I, honor forbids me from just taking a wild stab. So I'm gonna All right, see. who's willing to take a wild stab, guys? Star Trek Six. <laughs> that sounded yeah. like a very directed stab. <laughs> that sounded like the stab of somebody who knows his Star Trek. I was going to go Star Trek Eight. Okay, Nathan. Here's one for you that, I, that I'm that I, I just I really want to see this fanfic. Okay. Hannibal Lecter versus Commissioner Gordon. Goodness, that'd be Anthony Hopkins and uh, probably uh, Gary Oldman. Uh, I'm guessing. What motion picture were Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins in? Oh God, they're in the motion picture entitled Bram Stoker's Dracula. There you oh, go. Rat. One played Dracula and the other played Van Helsing. Nicely done. And both drew the scenery. Now, see, you guys are getting the hang of this. Yeah. All right, Noel. All right. Qui Gon Jinn. Versus Han Solo. All right, so uh, that's Liam Neeson. That's that's locked down. Uh, Han Solo would be uh, Harrison Ford. So Liam Neeson versus Harrison Ford um, in one of those movies where Harrison Ford was an action hero, most likely, <laughs> and where Liam Neeson was some kind of oily European villain, I'm guessing. Um, how about Air Force One? Not, in fact, Air Force One. Oh, points taken away. Guys, when do you want to go for the we'll go for the steal on this? Mm. Um, I'll take a wild stab and say it was frantic. 
It was not, Nathan. No? That is a very good question. Directed by a, uh, a reasonably and recently famous Oscar-winning lady director. Really? Wow. Uh, that would probably be... Um, b- b- Probably be Catherine Bigelow, and oh, it would be it. Uh, K-19, The Widowmaker. Yep. Nicely done. Hey, Liam Neeson was not. Liam Neeson and Harrison Ford uh, play sort yeah. of. I had completely forgotten to me now. Yeah, I, yeah. Completely, I had completely forgotten that Catherine Bigelow directed. It's Elder not from the Wilderness. It's not, not a bad movie. All right, we've got one coming up for Keith, but that'll be entering the last round. We do have a tiebreaker if necessary, um, but I'm having intern tests uh, tabulate the numbers, and it looks like Nathan is walking away with this one at the moment. He has six points to Noel's four points, uh, with Keith trailing at one point. Let's see what you guys can do with this round. Uh, Keith, this one's to you. Thomas Jefferson and Norbit. Oh, that's easy, but I'll walk you through my thought process anyway. Oh, God. It's uh, Nick Nolte and Thomas Jefferson in Paris, and it is uh, Eddie Murphy uh, is the star of Norbit, and the film is 48 Hours or Another 48 Hours. Mm, so I get two points. Make it up the difference. I'm perfectly willing to give you two points for that. <laughs> uh, Nathan, over to yes. you. If I were to say Ghost Rider versus Jesus, what would you say? Well, that would be Jim Caviezel uh, and Nicolas Cage. Um, and what motion picture did, I uh, say, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Oh, that could also maybe be Willem Dafoe, who also portrayed the role of Jesus. It could also be Jeffrey Hunter, but I'm guessing you're not going to go back uh, that far. Um, yeah, if you remember our uh, uh, something in common game, uh, common denominator game, there are a lot of people who have played Jesus over the years. That's true. So it would be Nicolas Cage and Willem Dafoe or Jim Caviezel. Probably Willem Dafoe. God, they both make so many terrible, terrible movies. <laughs> um, so many action movies together. God, but I'm totally blanking on it. I wouldn't nope. call this one an action movie. Uh-huh. Guys, either one of you want to roar in and uh, to make the steal off the current point leader? I no, want to. take it with this. But I can't. Right. If I were to say David Lynch. Oh, that oh. would be Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart is a motion picture. that's right. But he already already seeded his... uh... He did, yeah, but he got there before you did. So (laughs) I'm going to say that Nathan stole it from the field. And Willem Dafoe is... And they're both so fucking unforgettable in that movie. How could I forget it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're so fucking creepy. Both of them. Okay, uh, let's give uh, one more in the main round. Um, Noel, to you. Yep. We've got Dick Tracy and Bathsheba. Bathsheba? Bathsheba. Holy crap. Well, I got Warren Beatty. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I have no idea who may have played Bathsheba in the past, but uh, I'm just going to name a Warren Beatty movie just for the fun of it and say that it is uh, Reds. It is not Reds. Okay. Sadly, Bathsheba was, uh, other than this one, the closest I could come to a really iconic role for her. But given that it's such a long time dissolver favorite, I was kind of hoping somebody would just lunge in for it. I realized that it's not going to narrow it down much to say it's a movie where Warren Beatty plays opposite a, a iconically beautiful woman. But either guy, either you want to I'll just say wanna... Bonnie and Clyde is a possibility. Nope. Hey, if everybody loses a point, it comes down to even. But I guess Nathan could refuse to. <laughs> oh, take wait, we're a guess. losing points. I forgot that Scott Tobias rule was in effect. I'm, I'm going to. Uh, I'm gonna. What's it called? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to attempt to have a football analogy. Uh, I'm going to run out the clock. <laughs> I'm putting my knee on the on the on the on the touchdown, and I'm running okay. out the clock here. I'm going to acknowledge that one was a little, maybe slightly unfair. I was thinking of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh, oh Julie Christie, my favorite movie. I, well, yeah. that's why I threw it to you. Where did Julie Christie play Bathsheba? Uh, far from the Madden crowd. Right. As a matter of fact, in 1967. Ah. All right, how's the uh, how's the score look? 
Oh, so unfortunately, uh, Nathan's run out the clock plan, in fact, <laughs> does work. Um, and sadly, that means everybody else has dropped down uh, even lower. And he has a clear lead at seven, uh, Noel at two, and Keith at one. This is a really interesting process. Uh, I like actually watching people think. Uh, if they do not lynch me for running this game, uh, <laughs> we'll try to bring it back at some point in the future. If you guys have suggestions, by all means, uh, send us an email. And thanks for playing, guys. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for Bob for making this up. As usual, we're wrapping up with the recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell. We're impatient people with a lot of films to watch, so we demand people recommending more films to us tell us what's great about them as quickly as possible so we can get back to watching more movies. So here, two dissolvers have exactly 30 seconds each to sell the host on a movie or something related to cinema, a book, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever they want. The host gets to pick who sold their idea best in 30 seconds and is then morally obligated to take the recommendation. All right, Noel Murray, what do you have for me? Uh, My choice is actually a book that is out in December. It's called The End of the World. It's by Don Hertzfeldt, the the animator slash director whose uh, film last year was such a beautiful day. It was one of my favorites. Uh, it's his first graphic novel. It's uh, sort of odds and ends and ideas is how he describes it. Things that didn't fit into any of his previous short films. In his online journal, he says that if his films were albums, this would be the B-sides. Uh, you can look at excerpts and you can pre-order it right now at antibookclub.com. Under the wire. Nicely done. Also, uh, something I'm predisposed to like. You're going to have a hard road to hoe here, Scott Tobias. Yeah, you have a, you have I, a torture I, porn film you're going to start trying to sell oh, me on? You are the, the worst. The worst. <laughs> Uh, I do my best. All right. Uh, with with that psych out in process, let's see how you do. Uh, go. Uh, so many of you have probably seen Captain Phillips, but I'm guessing few of you have seen the year's other film about a commercial ship hijacked by Somali pirates. Uh, that would be the Danish film Hijacking, which is out now on DVD and Blu-ray from Magnolia. Uh, It's a film that's just as tense as Captain Phillips, but the emphasis is much different. It focuses on the efforts of the company that owns the ship to negotiate the ransom, and the bargaining attempts come at the expense of the health and safety of the men aboard. It drags on for months, and uh, the, you know, the relationship between the pirates and the crew, uh, once cordial, starts to t- deteriorate. All right, Scott. You, you clearly flubbed that. It was like you were locked in the hold of a ship somewhere with oh somebody God. demanding uh, <laughs> ransom, and you just couldn't stop talking. But, However, I am actually really, really eager to see a hijacking. I have it at home. It's on my short list of films that I need to see before our end-of-the-year stuff. Uh, at the same time, I'm going to hand Noel the award, both for coming in under time and because I really love Don Hertzfeld, too. And I was actually unaware of the existence of this book. So, uh, Noel, you get the notional trophy, um, but both of you, great recommendations. I recommend your recommendations to everyone, and I'm going to go check out both of these things. You know, I'm 0-3 now. I'm 0-3 <laughs> these stupid things. I'm like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm the least persuasive person uh, on staff right now. Terrible. Well, then you might as well just go with your first choice and go uh, all, to, all, all torture porn all the time. Yeah, next time. That does it for episode 10 of the Dissolve podcast. Two weeks from now, when episode 11 would normally drop, our offices will be closed and we'll be taking our holiday break. But expect the site and the podcast to return in January with more games and more conversations about film. In the meantime, you can experience The Dissolve on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, as well as in website form at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. If you'd like to pile on with Keith about the deep Tasha weirdness of enjoying unknown actors, or you want to tell me I'm not insane, you can find me on Twitter as Tasha Robinson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.